Morning. Um, as you'll have gathered from today's reading, we're continuing our short series looking at the book of Jonah. Chapter 3 tells the story of how Jonah finally obeyed God. And he goes to Nineveh and he proclaims God's message of judgment. We learn that God is the God of the second chance. And that God's love and mercy extends way beyond what we think is reasonable, extending even to our enemies. So let's continue our look uh, at Jonah, the very grumpy prophet, Um, but let's uh, first pray. Father God, you caused your spirit For who, um, through your spirit, Lord, you caused Holy Scripture to be written for our benefit. Grant that we may hear your word to us today through the story of Jonah and that through the comfort and the challenge of Scripture we may embrace and hold fast to the hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, let's begin with a bit of a recap. Um, In case you missed Graham's talk a few weeks ago on chapter one and Louise's talk last week on chapter two, the book of Jonah is uh, unusual um, uh, in that it's in the, the books of prophecies, but it's not a book of prophecies, it's a book about a prophet. So most of the prophetic books in the Old Testament record the words of God given to a particular individual to speak to the people uh, of Israel. Spoken through a particular prophet, such as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Joel. And there are the the major prophets like Isaiah, whose books are pretty long. Um, And then there are the the minor prophets, whose books are a little bit shorter. Um, And then we have Jonah, the very grumpy prophet. In fact, I think Jonah is perhaps more of an anti-prophet. He's a reluctant and rebellious prophet. So in chapter 1, we learn uh, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God said to him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So far, so good. But we've only got to verse 2. In the normal course of events, the prophet hears God's word and goes and declares them. But here, Jonah rebels. He runs away rather than going to Nineveh, which was to the the east of uh, Israel, in, in what is now northern Iraq. Jonah gets on a ship going to Tarshish. At the farthest end of the Mediterranean Sea, at the the end of the then known world, as far away as Jonah could think of going. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire that dominated the Near East at that time. The Assyrians had, had captured the northern kingdom of Israel and deported its citizens and almost succeeded in capturing Jerusalem too. And we learn something of Nineveh's reputation as the the capital of um, Assyria in the book of Nahum, which is a couple of books further on from Jonah in the Old Testament, where Nahum, speaking of Nineveh, says this, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder. 
never without victims. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? With its reputation for violence and terrorism, it was a symbol for everything that opposed God and opposed God's people. In many ways, it was perfectly understandable that uh, an Israelite prophet um, would be reluctant to accept a mission to that city. But of course, Jonah can't run away from God, from the God who made the universe, the God who's present everywhere, who sees everything, knows all things. And God thwarts Jonah's plans by sending a, a violent storm which threatens the ship that he's sailing on, threatens the lives of the sailors and everybody on board. We see the sailors throwing the cargo overboard and praying to their gods for help. And Jonah too? Oh, no, 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 no. Jonah is fast asleep in the bottom of the ship. The captain wakes him up and he demands that Jonah prays to his God. But we're not told if Jonah actually does pray. Seems pretty unlikely that he did going on past performance. And in the meantime, the sailors have been casting lots and determined that it's Jonah who is responsible for the calamity that has come upon them. And when they confront Jonah with his responsibility, he just comes out with religious cliches. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, he says. Really? How's that going to help? And it's only when the storm gets much worse that Jonah accepts any responsibility. And then when asked by the crew what they should do to appease Jonah's God, he says to them, throw me overboard. Now, perhaps understandably, the crew don't particularly like that idea of taking someone's life. Um, and they try lots of other things. But in the end, nothing's working, and Jonah goes over the ship's side. Now, why does Jonah suggest this? Is it because God is angry and needs a sacrifice? Well, well that seems unlikely, because elsewhere the Bible tells us that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now, we're not told the reason but perhaps Jonah just wanted a quick way out of his difficulty. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and a quick, watery death would solve the problem. But of course, God has other ideas. He sends this great fish to swallow Jonah. And in the belly of this fish, Jonah has time to reflect. And in chapter 2, we see Jonah praying what seems to be a prayer of thanksgiving that God has saved his life. And now Jonah promises to obey God. Although, as Louise pointed out last week, his prayer is more about himself than it is about God or the Ninevites. Jonah seems more concerned about himself than anything else and certainly has zero compassion for the people of Nineveh, not wanting to give them an opportunity to turn from their evil ways and experience God's grace. Indeed, even though he admitted to the sailors that it was his fault that the storm had come upon them, in his prayer he never technically repents or apologizes to God for his behavior. 
But he does say that he will obey. And he says that he will say, salvation comes from the Lord. But does he keep that promise? It seems God is slightly less than convinced of this change of heart, since somewhat comically, he gets the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. And perhaps the fish was fed up with listening to Jonah's weasel words too. So now we come to chapter 3. And it's a bit like a retake when you're making a film. So, take two. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. But this time he's told, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And this time, albeit covered in fish vomit, Jonah does go. God gave Jonah a second chance. Even after he disobeyed God the first time and run in the, in the opposite direction. In the same way, God is always willing to give us a second chance and forgive us when we repent and turn back to him. But by the time that Jonah gets to Nineveh and goes into the city, he seems to have forgotten his promise to obey and declare that salvation comes from the Lord. Now, now technically, I suppose he does obey because he does go to Nineveh and he does preach to the Ninevites, but he does so with very little enthusiasm. His preaching doesn't reflect any creativity or imagination or, or rhetorical flourishes. It's not the world's best speech. In fact, his sermon only consists of five words in Hebrew, the, the original language. He declares, in 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. That's it. It's about as short as it could be. And he makes no mention of Nineveh's sin or his wickedness that had come up before God, nor how they might make amends with God. He basically says, Nineveh, look out. Now, Jonah would know that the word he uses, meaning overthrown, was used in the book of Genesis to describe the destruction of those wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And that, in his heart of hearts, is pretty much what he wanted for Nineveh. Destruction. Raised to the ground. Utterly demolished. But that word in Hebrew has another meaning which is transformed or changed. And we see in, in the first book of Samuel, chapter 10, the prophet Samuel is talking to Saul. And he says to Saul, the spirit of God will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed, transformed, overthrown into a different person. This double meaning reveals God's purposes. It's pretty clear that, that Jonah, the, the insider, the Hebrew who worshipped the Lord, doesn't care at all about Nineveh and its inhabitants, but it's very clear from the lengths that God has gone to get Jonah there, to get his prophet to that city, that God cares very much about Nineveh and its peoples, despite its reputation. That God's mission was not to destroy Nineveh, but to transform it. And despite Jonah's really brief sermon, which perhaps could be taken as the raving of a, of a madman, because, I mean, come on, Jonah, Assyria 
is the superpower of the day dominating the entire Near East. How could that be overthrown? It's just ridiculous. And yet, amazingly, the result of those five words proclaimed to the people of Nineveh result in them repenting of their sins and turning to God. They fasted, put on sackcloth and ashes and cried out to God for mercy. And as we saw with the sailors in chapter one, the people of God can be amazed by the behavior of the people of the world. The insiders can be surprised by the outsiders. It, perhaps this reminds you of the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells us in the New Testament, where the outsider, the Samaritan, the enemy of God's people, is the one who shows compassion. And he shows up the insiders, the priest and the Levite who walked by on the other side and ignored the wounded man. And so hearing only five words from this very grumpy prophet, these outsiders, the Ninevites, have repented and cleaned up the violence in their city. The insiders, the Israelites, they, they, they had been listening to the words of the prophets that God had been sending them to them over the centuries. And their reputation there for, for their response is not a good one. Jesus himself lamented over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. It's not a good look. However, the attitude of the people of Nineveh would be long remembered and even held up by Jesus as an example to follow. Because we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment, the last judgment, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The king of Nineveh, this pagan king, even proclaimed a fast for the whole city and ordered everyone to turn away from their evil ways to seek God's forgiveness. The king's behavior is exemplary. He humbles himself by divesting himself of his, of his symbols of authority, his throne and his robe, and by putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. He calls for an all-inclusive fast, extending even to the animals. And he admonishes all to turn from their evil ways. And despite this, the king, this pagan king, humbly realizes that conducting a fast does not guarantee that the Lord will repent, uh, change his mind, and have mercy. The best that the king can say is, who knows? Perhaps he will. And like the pagan captain on the ship, the pagan king's overriding concern, unlike Jonah's, is for the people of Nineveh. And God saw their repentance and had mercy on them. He changes his mind. He doesn't destroy the city, but he spares it. And this is a powerful reminder to us that God's mercy is available to all who repent and turn to him or turn back to him. So the message of the book of Jonah to insiders, to the Israelites and to us, the church today, is a hard one. As Graham said when, when introducing the book, it holds up a, a mirror to us. 
We read about Jonah and then realize that the book is actually about us, that we are Jonah. It challenges us about our attitude today towards the people of other cities in the world, whether that be Damascus in Syria or Kabul in Afghanistan, Caracas in Venezuela, or Juba in South Sudan. Do we see people who are other than us, who are alien and foreign, and to be rejected and excluded? Or do we see fellow human beings made in the image of God? It challenges us to be a people of welcome and acceptance. It challenges us to be a people who include rather than exclude, who are willing to embrace diversity and difference. It challenges us about our attitude towards people who are different to us, people who look different to us, who come from different cultures or subcultures, who may have different values because they have yet to encounter the love of Jesus, uh, of, of, G of God in Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that the church exists for the sake of the people of the world. The 2030 vision of the Diocese of London here is for every Londoner to encounter the love of God in Christ. Every Londoner. And the former Archbishop of Canterbury said that the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. The book of Jonah warns us against an arrogant insider-outsider, them-us mentality. The book of Jonah speaks a word of criticism against those who prefer to keep in the safety of their own groups rather than fulfilling Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations. It warns us not to forget that we are Christ's ambassadors, participating in his mission to reconcile the world to God. As Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, Paul says, as though God were making his appeal through us. We're ambassadors of the kingdom of God, which Jesus initiated in his earthly ministry, a ministry which demonstrated that God desired mercy, not sacrifices. We worship and serve a God who in Jesus included the last, the least, and the lost of the first century the outcasts who were excluded from worshipping in the temple because they were ritually unclean, the maimed, lepers, the long-term sick and disabled. Jesus reached out to and included women and foreigners who, and children. Foreigners even if they were enemies of Israel. And that is the point, I think, of the book of Jonah. It asks of us, are you okay Worshipping a God who loves your enemies. Are you in your heart of hearts glad that God loves his enemies? So, in conclusion, God loves everyone. Even the people we think should be excluded. Perhaps you have excluded yourself because you think 
you're not worthy or holy enough to be a Christian. Jesus extends his arms to you and embraces you and says, you are loved, as we've sung earlier. You are mine, he says. Come to me. God's love and mercy has no limits, however much we think there should be. As the risen Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In our own lives, we may sometimes find ourselves in situations where we've disobeyed God and are facing the consequences of our actions. But we need to remember, as the Ninevites show us, that it's never too late to turn back to God, to seek his forgiveness and to start anew. My prayer is that God will give us the courage to obey his commands, the humility to repent when we fall short, and the strength to follow him all the days of our lives. And perhaps there are some of you here this morning for whom it's not a matter of turning back to God because you've not yet turned to Jesus to accept him as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps today is the day to make that decision, to open that door of your heart and let him in, to admit that you've tried to live life your way, but you finally admit that you can't. You can't make it work without Jesus. If it is, then today will be the most wonderful day of your life. So I'd like us all to stand if you're able to. And if you've been a Christian a while, but want to recommit your life to Jesus, or if you've not met Jesus yet and you want to give your life to him this morning for the first time, then pray with me as I pray this prayer. Let's pray. Close your eyes and... Hold out your hands if you want to. And let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I have wandered far from you and the kind of life that you desire me to have. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you, Jesus, died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins, my self-righteous ways, and invite you to come into my heart and my life. I choose to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, then please speak to me or to Graham or to Louise or Rachel uh, at the end of the service so that we can pray with you, give you a Bible and welcome you into God's kingdom and the amazing adventure that is the Christian life.